And the truth is, is that the moment that we can shift from I can't to I can, or from I should or I shouldn't to I can, is that paradigm shift. That's that moment where I now am responsible for the choice and whatever consequences it brings are mine. As a young mother, I experienced a paradigm shift that transformed how I saw education and ultimately the world around me. I started this podcast, The Luminous Mind, to connect with and learn from people who are disrupting the status quo in how they learn, educate, and live in the world around them. Prepare for a paradigm shift. Light a candle. Light your world. Benjamin Franklin said, instead of cursing the darkness, light a candle. You're listening to The Luminous Mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. Today's fire starter is Zach Spafford. Zach Spafford is a Be Bold master trained life coach, currently attending the Life Coach School with over 25 years of experience with addictive behaviors. He's been coaching in the business world for over 15 years and changing lives through increased productivity and achieved results. Zach has a passion for making people's lives better through helping them move past their addictive behaviors and become the people they want to be. Welcome, Zach. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) It's super fun to have you join my podcast. Uh, Just to tell our audience a little bit about how we know each other, you're actually, I think you said my cousin-in-law because you're uh, my husband's cousin. (laughs) But I thought it was- Uh, I think I'm your husband's, let's see, I think I'm your husband's first cousin once removed. Okay. Okay. I think that's well, technically what I am, I don't, but don't quote me on that. Yeah. And, and pretty much I know you almost <laughs> like a Facebook friend because <laughs> there's enough distance between us that I don't really, you know, it's not like we get together for family reunions or, or whatever. So we've but, never met really. <laughs> yeah. We've never, <laughs> never met other than online. So, but it was really fun. Zach started a new podcast and um, it was funny. He kind of got a hold of me and then I I was listening to his podcast. I'm like, oh, this is going to go awesome with what I want to talk to people about in January. We're going to talk a little bit about, definitely get more into your podcast and stuff. And then this article, I wanted you to kind of come on and shoot the breeze with me about James Clear's article of how to say no, resist temptation and stick to your goals. But before we dive into any of that, just tell our audience maybe a little bit more about yourself. So I am Zach Spafford. I am a life coach. I'm studied under Jody Moore, if you know who that is, uh, and Brooke Castillo at the Life Coach School. I'm about halfway through my Life Coach School experience, and I'll be done in February. But I started a podcast called the Self Mastery Podcast, and my focus is on LDS men and women who have a pornography problem. That was something that I struggled with as I was growing up, and it's something that I, I found that I have some answers to, and I'm and I was able to move past it in some unique ways. And I think that there's, you know, there's really a a lack of good, solid, clear answers for LDS men and women. I think we, we often get pushed to the ARP uh, group meetings that, that the church puts on in the evenings. But unfortunately I I find that that doesn't help a lot of people. And that's not just, you know, what I have to say about it. That's, it's a statistical issue that, that bears out statistically. And what I do is I help people, I help people learn the process one of, of repentance and understanding, okay, how do I actually go about changing my own mind? And two, how to take back your agency and own the things that you're doing in a way that allows you to not simply follow the process through, but build the person that you want to be. That's why I called it the Self Mastery Podcast, because my goal is to help you not just master this one thing, but begin the process of mastering who you are and who you want to be so that in the long run, you can find joy in your life. I love that because I really think that if we can solve, you know, that issue in one or, or try to figure out maybe like a, like a formula for us to help get rid of one problem in our life, it can help us lead to the other problem. I think it's interesting too, you know, you talk about specifically focusing on LDS men and women with pornography, uh, using some of the things that I think that we should, as members of the church, be super 
already kind of use these processes, but, and that's of repentance as well as agency, because we're huge into, you know, everyone should have their own agency type of thing. But do you feel like, we kind of talked about this in our pre, you know, interview uh, chat. Uh, Do you feel like maybe though that LDS people aren't grasping that concept of repentance and agency because we're kind of taught not to talk about kind of stuff like this. You know what I mean? Like we got to keep it under the carpet and um, not really deal with it like that. You know, is that kind of your thought process behind it or do you see other obstacles in that way? Yeah. So repentance and agency are really important. And I, you know, the article that we're going to talk about today, uh, I think goes to the heart of agency. Um, I think too often we think of repentance as this very scripted process of, you know, saying I'm sorry and going to the bishop and being forgiven and maybe there's some punishment of some sort and then that's all. But the reality that that I think that most LDS people don't recognize is that repentance has a base root and that root is, it's a Greek word, metanoia, uh, and it most directly, most clearly translates as to have a new mind. But what's your mind if it's not your thoughts? And the process that I teach people is a process of changing your thoughts, you know, whatever thought it is that you are engaging in that's creating a feeling and an action and a result that proves your thought to moving that thought to something that one is believable and two is something that you prefer that serves you better, right? So, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, as I was going through my addiction recovery process, and I think if anybody's, if you've been to one of these addiction recovery meetings, they're, they're full of earnest men and, and earnest women who are trying to change their lives. But it's interesting to me that one of the things that you initially say that, you, you know, you come into that meeting, you say, hi, my name is Zach and I'm an addict. And I think that's a really interesting phrase because it's a phrase that reinforces a behavior that isn't necessarily who you want to be. (laughs) And right. And one thing you'll notice is that over time, as men, you know, and women attend these meetings, they'll actually change the phrase. They'll say things like, hi, my name is Zach and I'm a recovering addict or hi, my name is Zach and I'm, I I stopped using pornography, but I'm, you know, I still come to these meetings. You know, they'll, they'll morph the phrase into something that more accurately reflects who they want to be and who they are trying to be. And I think that speaks to the nature of the power of our minds and how, you know, when we say something over and over and over and over again, you tend to believe it, which means that your thoughts have this capacity to create whoever you are. That's very true. Well, I feel like we're kind of shortchanging our our listeners because we've touched on a little bit like this is a this has been a problem for you. But I'd love to hear more, maybe uh, that background, you know, of how come yeah. you have so much empathy for people with, you know, porn addictions or with um, addiction behaviors of, of any kind. Yeah. So when I was eight years old, I, you know, I forayed onto the pl- playground in my local town, Dugway, Utah, which is right next to nothing in the middle of the desert outside of, uh, I don't even know what county it is it's in, but I was a little kid and I went to the playground and there was one of those big, huge dump truck tires that used to, they used to have on playgrounds that smell like cat pee all the time. And, <laughs> yep. I remember. and you know, I just hopped in there. Cause of course that's what you do. You jump into a cat pee filled dump truck tire <laughs> when you're an eight year old kid. And I found a dirty magazine and that was my first exposure to pornography. And from that point, Pornography became a topic and a a lure to me that I couldn't seem to shake. Well, and with the internet nowadays. For a lot of years, it makes it a lot easier to to have it, right? Yeah. You know, there there used to be, you know, the fact that you would have to have that chance meeting with it. And now uh, all you really have to do is have a phone. Yeah, I think they used to call it dumpster porn because literally you have to climb through the dumpster to find to find the magazine yeah. but but now yeah you yeah, just have to phone or a computer and it's becoming a real problem for people so so that's where it started for me and at some point about five or six years ago now i had been going to meetings i've been dealing with counselors i had worked with my ecclesiastical leaders my bishops and my stake presidents and i found that i wasn't changing what wasn't happening was i wasn't getting better and that was a real source of frustration for me. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to take a step back from where I am and I'm going to stop going to these meetings. I'm going to stop going to these counselors. I'm going to continue to work with my bishops because I felt like that was a source of strength. They were very encouraging. But I also recognized that they did not have any more answers than I did. Yeah. You know, most often, people who did not have a, a background in counseling, they most often were individuals who simply were called to stand in judgment 
but they weren't men who generally had any better grasp on how to deal with this than I did. And, and frankly, I think most bishops are frustrated. They sit across the table from men and women of all ages, and they go, why is this crushing us still? Um, to use the, fr- I mean, they, they try to go, okay, we need to pray more. We need, to, I mean, that's really all they, all the kind of training that they have. But if you've ever struggled with any type of problem like that, that's a, addictive, I mean, I can tell you with depression, that doesn't work, you know, and, and that's where the frustration comes in sometimes too, right? Is that? Well, yeah, absolutely. And you feel like you're out of control. They feel like you're out of control. There's really just no, there's no capacity there within the organization to make changes happen. So I, I took a step back from all of that. And I just said, I'm going to keep talking to my bishop. I'm going to keep talking to my wife, but I'm going to figure this out. And so I started doing some research of my own and started to try and understand my brain and why it was doing what it's doing. And which, by the way, if you're using pornography or you are depressed, your brain is working properly, but it is working in a way that doesn't serve you long run. And what I mean by that is your brain has, you know, your, your lower brain has three basic tasks that it, that it works on and it does them very well. It seeks pleasure, it avoids pain, and it, um, it's, uh, what's the third thing? It seeks pleasure, avoids pain, and it conserves energy. So that's why you have habits, and that's why you like chocolate donuts, and that's also why you pull your hand away from a burning pot. But your lower brain can't really tell the difference between I don't feel good, you know, like I'm just sad, and I'm going to die because a lion's going to eat me. It doesn't really, you know, it doesn't have a good gauge for the difference between those two. And so that's why you have to bring it up to your higher brain and say, okay, is this next action going to serve me? And when it comes to pornography, the answer is probably not. And when you use pornography long enough, your brain is not, it's not really stuck. You've just created a habit. And I tend to believe, and this is just my personal opinion, I'm not a scientist, but I tend to believe that the majority of men who participate in the church's addiction recovery program are not addicts. I believe they just have a habit they haven't figured out how to break. And I, you know, I teach them a process of how to break that habit. Okay. And that's, that's how I came to be here. In fact, one day we went to a Jody Moore event in Spokane, Washington. We spent a week with Jody and everything that I heard, it was me and the Relief Society essentially there. It was me and 50 other women. So <laughs> it's kind of a daunting experience. But every one of these women, you know, was like, this is something we need. This is something that is of value. And you can help change people's lives with this. And so that's, that's where we kind of jumped off and, and my life changed. I got home from that on Mother's Day. My best friend in the world fired me. He said, I can't have you working for me anymore, which was a relief. And off we went. And, and this is where we are now. Oh, that's cool. So uh, you said you have 25 years of experience and that you've been coaching in the business world for 15 years. Well, I mean, what does that look like? So you've 20, helped with people with this. Uh, five years of experience with addiction is, uh, you know, that's my, that's my own okay. personal struggle. That's okay. my own personal journey. Okay. And then for 15 years, I coached in the business world. My goal was to help improve people's effectiveness by helping them change the processes within their organization. So coaching is natural to me. It's, it's second nature. And now with the, with the vocabulary that I didn't ever have before that I'm learning through the life coach school, I can help an individual now change their own life. Okay. That's awesome. Well, I'd love to hear maybe those challenges of how you were struggling and then ways you got started and what you learned from that. Sometimes we have challenges as we're moving through that authentic, you know, moving towards this life mission of you coaching people. What were some of those challenges that you had kind of along that way? And then how did, you know, how did that help change your mindset and what did you learn from it? So I think the first challenge is is that, you know, when you, when you have eight kids, like I do starting a new business from scratch and saying, okay, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to, I'm going to start doing something that one doesn't really exist. I'm also going to tap into this unmet need uh, that's daunting. I'll be honest with you. That that's a that's a space where not too many people have been. And you know, I think it's nice and easy to say, okay, well, I've got a job, and the job pays me X, and I can afford a life that makes me feel Y, and you know, all the things that come along with just growing up in life, right? And and becoming an adult and setting yourself up for not just success but comfort. And 
when we decided, yeah, Zach, you should be a life coach and we're going to spend a significant investment to go to the life coach school and we're going to spend, you know, we're going to sell our house and we're going to go move in with the in-laws and we're going to focus on creating a program that's going to help people change. That's, you know, yeah. That. That's not an easy decision. Yeah. Right. Well, it is like, pretty who nice. wants to give up their life of comfort and ease for a life of, uh, of hard work and figuring things out that you're not familiar with. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you know, if you're at all a Dave Ramsey fan, he says that we're all on commission. We just, some of us just don't know it <laughs> because, you know, when you're working for yourself, you know, if you're going to be eating that next week or not. But if you're working for somebody else, you know, it's kind of like you're in this uh, perpetual bliss until they finally just tell you. <laughs> and then it, it's like a bomb hits you. I <laughs> mean, just like your friend, right. you know, that did it. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and we've recently. Well, the truth is we're all too. salespeople. Some mm -hmm. of us are engineers, but we're all salespeople. Yeah. We got to prove ourselves. Right. In and, and the reality whatever. is that if you're bringing value to the world, yeah. then you're going to get it returned to you. But if you bring that value to the world, within an organization, then your reward quotient goes down. Okay. That's interesting. So when you, when you Go own ahead. the organization, right? If you're the owner of a business, you're uh -huh. taking on a significant amount of risk, but the rewards to you are great. You look at Jeff Bezos, for example. Oh yeah. Right. So he created this organization. The risks to him were essentially infinite, right? In any number of places he could have failed. And now he is a multi-billionaire, right? So the rewards to him were significant. Now, if you're an employee of Jeff Bezos, your risk goes down significantly because you put in a certain number of hours and you receive a certain salary, but your reward is much, much less than Jeff Bezos. And I guess that's where I'm going with that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and that's the fun of starting your own business is that you take all the risks, but you also hopefully, you know, will come out at the end doing the thing that you love to do, actually making money and, and living well. So do you find yeah. um, this is a, another thing, you know, living in the, the Mormon paradigm too, is that sometimes we don't want to have to pay for, I mean, even if we're addicted to, you know, have a, a a severe addiction like this that we want out, you know, a lot of people just want to do it for as cheap as possible. Do you feel like there's a problem? Like, is that maybe that a challenge too of like trying to get yeah, people to so figure that's out a really how good to pay question. for that? And it's an interesting, yeah. So it's an interesting question, right? Because the idea is, yeah. So I know that this is what your time and your idea is worth to you, but you know, I'd like to clip a coupon here and get it for half price because I have all these reasons, right? And, yeah. and family discount. Members of, yeah, members member of, the, of church the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> we're good at, we are the coupon clipping capital of the world. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's totally fine. But I think it's important to remember, the question really isn't, what's it going to cost me? It's what am I going to save? Am I going to save my marriage? What's the cost of a marriage? What's the cost of, of living life in a marriage where I'm frustrated and so is my spouse? And at some point, until that equation exceeds what my price is, then I'm not your guy. You know, feel free to continue to go to the free ARP meetings and, and feel free to continue to work with your bishop and feel free to uh, keep working with your counselors. But at the point that you recognize, okay, that none of that's working and I'm about to spend six to $10,000 getting divorced, it might be worthwhile <laughs> to take a look yeah. at, at something else. Right. Unless you've been on that side of the aisle, you don't realize how expensive divorce really is. <laughs> right. right. So. Yeah. So I'm not saying that that's the end consequence of every pornography addiction or pornography user's life. But what I am saying is, yes, of course, you know, you, you might be able to get this cheaper somewhere. I've never seen it cheaper somewhere. Uh, and certainly not with, with my experience and certainly not with the skills and the tools because I'll be honest with you, if I could have found this program when I was 21, I would have paid an infinite amount of money to have this problem go away. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there are a lot of people who would, would say the same thing. Yeah. But at the same time, if, you know, if it's just not worth it to you, well, the cost of change just might be too high for you. That's up to you. That's up to every individual. Well, and I, I think like working with a life coach or, you know, to help you become a master to reach that level of mastery, whether you have an addiction or not, is extremely helpful because, uh, you know, as you're moving through your goals, sometimes it helps to have that accountability partner that actually knows how to get you to the next step 
versus, um, like you said, just going in and talking to somebody who's like, you know, yeah. I have no idea any more than you do on how to fix this other than pray or, right. you know, do something like that. Well, and here's the difference between me and say a psychiatrist or me and, and your, your bishop, right? Those guys are all concerned with your past, right? They're all very concerned with your past. The psychologist, your, your counselor, your bishop, they're going to talk about what happened. But if you've ever played sports, you know, I played football in high school. We never really talked about what happened three weeks ago. We never talked about what happened four weeks ago. We usually talked about what happened last week at the game. And that was a brief exchange. And then the coach's sole focus was, how can I get you the skills that you need so that you can go be better next week? Mm -hmm. And that's the difference between a counselor and a coach. And that's what I'm here for. My goal is to give you the skills so that you can make better choices going forward because I can't change the past, neither can you. Yeah, uh, I'm all into coaches and mentoring uh, so much more than maybe, like you said, that teaching. And if you've ever done any uh, therapy, like that talk therapy, uh, like you said, a lot of times just going over the past stuff doesn't help you heal. It actually can almost prolong the pain. Then, you know, like you said, let's focus on the future. Um, yeah. I'd love to hear like that paradigm change, you know, of when, I mean, you said that you, you're struggling with this and you, you were ready to figure it out. You know, what was the steps to helping you kind of figure that out? And, and how did your paradigm change to be a much more like futuristic type of thinker versus always focusing on what you shouldn't be doing? <laughs> yeah. So that's a really good question. So I think the typical model, the pattern of behavior for most LDS men and women who deal with something like pornography. And this is exactly what I did. I had a problem. My wife found out about my problem and that, you know, that was just a terrible, horrible experience, right? It was horrible for her. It was horrible for me. And then there came this process of, okay, you need to go see the bishop. And then the bishop would say, now it's time for you to go to the ARP and I can also offer you some counseling. Um, you know, paid for by the church at that point in my life, because I don't think we were making very much money, you know, and then I would go to those meetings, I would get my accountability partner, I would do everything, you know, go through all 12 steps multiple times, do everything that I was asked to do by by my church leaders, by my wife, by my counselors. And yet what I didn't find was that any of them really gave me any skills or tactics it was a lot of kind of what you said. It's okay, well, let's make sure you read your scriptures and pray about it. And, and don't forget to you know, write down all your sins and then go apologize to anybody who you have offended, all of that. And none of it, none of it changed my future behavior. All it really did was make me feel like, man, I don't want to keep repeating this. So yeah. I felt bad, but I didn't have a process or an understanding of how to make a change. And when you look at the Greek root of the word repentance, meaning to have a new mind, I was not changing my mind. I wasn't changing my fundamental thought process. You know, if you know anything about marketing, you know that it's not facts that make people do things. It's their feelings. You know, you buy a new phone that's the latest gadget because it makes you feel cool or you, you know, 40 year old men are a really good example of this when they buy Corvettes, like Corvettes, just not that practical of a vehicle, but we buy it because it makes us feel great. My mother-in-law has a, uh, a very nice Audi, you know, it doesn't drive any faster than my Ford F-150. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's emotion that makes us buy things. That means that emotion is essentially the thing that makes us do everything in our life and thoughts create our emotions. And what I mean by that that is, and this is, by the way, this is the model by Brooke Castillo. So circumstances being neutral, our thoughts about those circumstances are actually what make us have feelings, create our actions. And then those actions create a result that usually proves our feelings. And what I mean by this is I often, as a, as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with a pornography problem, my thought was, I can't stop looking at pornography. Well, that's an interesting thought because if I said to you as a member of the church, you're a Mormon, you can't drink coffee. What would you say to me? Well, it creates that scarcity mindset. You know what I mean? Like, like we talked about, like you don't have any control over. It's just decided for you. Right. If your ability to drink coffee is decided for you, whose agency is that? It's not yours. Uh, yeah, you don't have any choice over it. It's just, right. Yeah. So if you say, well, you're right, I can't drink coffee. 
because the word of wisdom says so, or my church leaders tell me I, I can't, then you're actually abdicating your choice, your responsibility in your ability to have agency to someone else. Mm-hmm. And when you well, say, I can't, you essentially cut off your agency. Well, and but I if, think uh, we all have that teenager inside oh, us too. You know, whenever... Yeah. Whenever um, we're told that we can't do something, we find a way to somewhat rebel against it. And that, that I can't makes it more tantalizing in a way, <laughs> you know, makes yeah. it more like. Right. It, it creates some sense of desire for that thing. Now, my response when people, so I worked for uh, an insurance company for a lot of years and everybody knew I didn't drink. I would get root beer floats instead of beer. And my response was always, I can, but I choose not to. Mm-hmm. Now, can you imagine walking into Relief Society and having the entire room, you know, s- sit there and watch you say something to the effect of, I can look at pornography if I choose to. Yeah. I don't they're... know that you would leave that room with all your limbs. I think there'd be some <laughs> sisters in there that would be terribly upset about that. Part of the problem is, is that we as a society, we've created this idea that, no, you can't look at pornography. But the yeah. truth is... I will say it is more true to say that I can look at pornography than it is to say I can't, especially for users, because when they say I can't stop looking, but they're looking, I can't stop and they look, right? They're in a space of, I am not in control of this. It's just happening to you. Yeah. Yeah. It just happened. Yeah. Oh yeah. How many times has an addict got to the end of their session and decided, "I, I don't know how I got here. And the truth is, is that the moment that we can shift from I can't to I can or from I should or I shouldn't to I can is that paradigm shift. That's that moment where I now am responsible for the choice and whatever consequences it brings are mine. Mm -hmm. That's where I started. I started by saying I can and I might choose to today or I can and I may not want to today. And those were more believable for me than the rest of it, than those I should or I shouldn't, I can'ts, those thoughts of I can and I, and I choose to or I can and this is my responsibility, those were more true to me than the other. Yeah. Well, and that kind of moves into that James Clear article that we kind of teased our audience with before of how to say no and resist temptation is just changing the I can't to I don't. And then like we talked about, um, and and the study is really interesting of, you know, the people that used I can't um, versus the people that say that I don't, you know, the likelihood of them actually sticking with what they want to do uh, goes way up. But I'd love to hear maybe your story of how, you know, once you started changing that verbiage to I can, you know, I can look at pornography. I mean, how did you end up stopping when you're like, yeah, I can do that. I don't have any problem with that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, so I think there's a difference there, right? I, right. So especially when I work with, with my clients, I say to them, you know, saying that I can do something is not permission to do it. Right. That's and that's right. a big difference. Because what that means is, yes, you have agency and you are maintaining agency. And in doing so, you can choose to do it or not do it. But the moment you say, I can't, and you abdicate that agency, then the choice is, you know, ethereal. It's left up to something else that's outside of you, right? And I use something called a thought ladder, right? So I go from I can, and I might choose to, to... I can, and I'm not going to choose to today, but I might do it tomorrow. And the further along that you progress in that thought ladder, eventually you come to the same thought that I gave when I talked about drinking, which is I can, but I choose not to. That's a place of both ownership and not doing the thing that isn't serving you. Yeah. Well, and like James Clear is talking about in that article between can't and don't is that that don't phrase of I don't do that or, you know, or I I like yours even better, you know, that I can, but I choose not to. Um, It actually is an empowering feeling to us, right? Like, like you were saying, I mean, why do we buy things? It's all based off of our feelings, right? Is that what you're going with that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and that's just it. So you know, when, when people think I can't, um, it, it engenders feelings of disempowerment and it engenders feelings of, of sadness. You know, I can't go to the movies. Yeah. I can't do the thing that I want. Right. 
well, there's and a lot like of I said, negative it, feelings that it, it turns me into that rebellious teenager again, you know, right. like, you know, I don't like being controlled. <laughs> so. Yeah. And your lower brain, which by the way, is very good at seeking pleasure may say, okay, we're taking over now. You're feeling bad. Let's go do something that's not good for you, but makes you feel good in the moment, right? That instant gratification, which usually I, I very rarely have any ever seen an instant gratification that was not negative in a long-term sense. And then, exactly. but when you move from I can't to I can, so I can is usually a space of empowerment, right? Yeah. Um, it's I can become a doctor. I can go to college. I can drive a car. I can walk up these stairs. I can't, whatever that, whatever the I can is, that's a place where you feel both empowered and in control and yet not necessarily compelled, right? And that's a very different equation within our brains. And at some point, you have to move from an I can't world. So uh, about a year and a half ago, my kids started using I can't do that. I can't do this on everything I asked them to do. And it wasn't that they couldn't do it. It was, it was, you know, it was a combination of, you know, lack of motivation. You know, kids, take out yeah. the trash. I can't. It's too heavy. Okay, lack well, if I skill, gave you a $100 of, bill, yeah. <laughs> right, you would figure it out. You wouldn't be like, I can't do that, right? Like, it, 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 there's not a space in you that makes it impossible for you to get the trash out. It's just that you are simply choosing not to because you don't have the motivation. So they kept saying, I can't, I can't, I can't. And I found this quote on the internet, they can because they think they can. Well, and I, I was thinking um, about and, that. Yeah, with our kids, it's an excellent example of like, we never want to tell them that, well, you can't, you know, you can't be a doctor or you can't do this, or we don't like to hear that as parents even, you know, we want our children to feel empowered. But then here we're taking uh, something that really becomes a, a crutch for people and we're using the same words, hoping that, you know, uh, saying that I can't is, is going to stop them. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, no, you're exactly right. So I found this quote by Virgil, they can because they think they can. And I put it up everywhere in the house because I was so sick of them saying I can't. And I feel like I can't is like, the, those are the two and a half. I'm going to say two and a half because can't is a, <laughs> it's a <laughs> compound word, right? Those are the two and a half least useful words in the English language when they're put together. They just don't do anything for anyone. And, you know, back to the article, the idea of somebody saying, I can't versus I don't, or I choose not to, or that's not for me, or, you know, whatever other phrase that you can insert there is so empowering. It's a place Mm -hmm. of being able to choose what you want and who you want to be. I mean, if my kids had said to me when I said, hey, take out the trash, they would say, well, you know, it's really not something that I like to do because unfortunately the trash is too heavy, is very heavy. And, you know, I would prefer not to do it because it, it is a strain on my body. That would be a much more honest answer than I can't. Exactly. Yeah. Tell us well, the reasons why. Because kids don't talk like that. But, <laughs> right. But at the very least, it would be honest. And I think that's probably the place where most of us go wrong is that we're not being honest with ourselves. Well, and and really, I think uh, when we talk about mastery, it comes down to that of how honest are you really being with yourself? Because we lie to ourselves all the time, you know, of what... Oh, we're so good at it. Yeah, we what we think we want versus what we're really telling ourselves. Um, And for me, that's what basically repentance means is that I'm finally just being honest with who I am and who I... I want to be, and that's one of the things that I love about like uh, what we learn about agency and, and that kind of thing is that we always teach that we have that choice and, and there's that determination and it helps to affirm that determination anyway and give us that extra. Well, yeah, because when you, right, exactly. When you choose to say, I I actually can look at pornography, that's much more honest because- The reality is, is that even as grown people who don't necessarily seek it, it's everywhere. And so, yeah, I can look at pornography and I don't have to be affected by it. Or I can look at pornography and I can choose to ignore it, right? That's just as honest. That's just as valid of a a response as anything in the can't realm. In fact, I think it's more valid because it's more honest. Yeah. 
Well, and how do you get to a point though? I mean, I know a lot of adults that's like, uh, even with drinking or something like that, it's like, Hey, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I can drink. I can, I can do this thing. You know, I can have this little secret life going on and still function well in my life. I mean, how do you help people go? I mean, there's a point where, yeah, they're being honest, but are they really, they're being honest about what they're doing, but they're not being honest about the, the consequences of what that's doing to them or their relationships or, you know, um, anyway, even, even to their own spirit or their own mind. Does, does that make sense to you? Yeah, well, I think part of that is, is a desire to change, right? So, you know, I think the reason why so many Mormon men and women struggle with pornography use is not because they have a moral objection to pornography, I think it's because they have a moral objection to pornography. They're not honest with themselves and they're also not honest with their desire to use pornography. And what I mean by that is we forget that our bodies are designed to enjoy both what pornography offers and the end result of pornography in its purest form, which is a relationship with a spouse, right? And so if we're honest about, okay, yeah, pornography is not necessarily good, but there are reasons why I appreciate pornography and why my lower brain really enjoys it, then we'll be much more honest in terms of our ability to change, right? If, if we fail to admit that pornography has, has value to a certain extent, then we fail to admit the strength of our enemy. Huh, that's, right? that's interesting. Um, I kind of tell my kids with pornography, it is kind of like that anyway, because what I think you're saying is that it's almost like food. I mean, you hear people who, um, you know, we, ha we have to eat, but, but then there are people who are addicted to that as well. And that's kind of the way it is with pornography is that um, that sexual desire is, it's inherent. It's of who we are as people. That's a place we want to come to. We want to come to, you know, the sexual relationship with a spouse. But in reality, what that's it's doing is it's maybe making it harder to have a, a good, healthy relationship. Is that what I'm getting out of what you're saying then? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a lot of components there, right? So one is when we deny our sexuality, and Dr. Finlayson Fife, she talks about this quite, quite bluntly. When we deny our sexuality, we're not doing ourselves any favors. And the fact that pornography brings up all of those feelings within us is something to be understood. It's not something to be ashamed of. Yeah. Well, and I think maybe when we, people when we would think that shame, was, was, is healthier because they're like, well, at least I'm not actually cheating on a spouse. You know what I mean? Like they justify that it's a better behavior than, than something else, right? Yeah. So I, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, the moral code that we choose to live by whatever that moral code is, right? So if you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then there are certain things that you're supposed to do that are part of the moral code of being a Mormon, right? Mm -hmm. But until you choose to engage in that value, right? Until you say, this is a value that I want to uphold, then whatever moral code you have in front of you is not necessarily going to have any hold on you, right? Until you decide, okay, I don't actually want to participate in pornography. I see that I see the negatives are outweighing the positives here. Until that's your frame of mind, then there's not really anything to change per se, right? And yeah. and that's that's setting aside for a moment the moral absolute that pornography is a is a negative. And why why I say that is because. There are people out there who will make an argument that I don't agree with, but that will make an argument that pornography is good. Just kind of like you are there playing the devil's advocate, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why circumstances are neutral. Because from two sides of the argument, there's no agreement. And so when you say, okay, well, pornography is, and you leave off good and bad, I think we can all agree pornography is. And then the only thing that changes is what we think about it. So if I think it's bad, then I have a whole set of emotions and actions and results that come from that. And if you think it's good, then you have a whole other set of actions and emotions and uh, results that come from that. And the question then becomes, if I choose to say pornography is bad, if that's the way that I want to live my life, then the question is, how do I live that way in such a way that it does not 
it doesn't trap me. It doesn't hold me down. It doesn't keep me from living my best life and being the person that I want to be. Yeah. I just love this, uh, this thought process that we're going through because I, I feel like that's, um, it is a very disruptive way of looking at, at something that we have to decide basically where our value system lies in a way and, and how we want to empower our, our lives is kind of what I'm getting out of what you're saying is that um, yeah. we can make the, the judgment on it, but that doesn't, you know, what's, what would serve you best, I guess, is the, the answer that you have to come up with to help you with the, with I can, but I choose not to because, you know, especially as a trying to help people live their best life, they have to figure out that other part of the is, right? Of like, is this serving you for the best, yeah. for your best life? Okay. Yeah. Is this That's the person awesome. that you want to be? I was actually having this conversation with my son the other day who, you know, was dealing with some stuff with his, um, his girlfriend and he's a little too young to have a girlfriend. And so they were having a conversation and it was one of those things where I was able to be in on this conversation more than I wanted to be, but I was in on it. And afterwards, you know, I just sat my son down and had, had a conversation about the exchange that he had with this girl. And I said, is that really who you want to be? Is that the person that you want to be? Or are you just kind of going along and being, being like water and taking the path of least resistance? And yeah. it was kind of eye-opening for both of us because to me underscored the idea that we need to build the person that, that we are. We need to build the person that we want to be rather than, there are very few people in this world, I, I haven't met too many of them, who are automatically great at everything. Who are automatically the person they want to be. I would almost wonder though if they're they're secrets that we don't know about. You know what I mean? Like Exactly. In fact, the truth is is that more often than not, people who on the outside look and seem great, they have their own darkness that they're dealing with behind the scenes, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so it was this moment of, okay, who are you and who do you want to build yourself into? Rather than are you just going to go along the path of least resistance? Yeah, exactly. Would you like to talk maybe more about what you feel like you got out of the article? It sounds like you were already on that path, but how does this article of how to say no, resist temptation and stick to your goals kind of work with what you're teaching people with the coaching? Is there something maybe we haven't covered that you want to touch on? So I think there's some clarity in this article that I think everyone can take into their own lives, right? Every one of us is all the time thinking thoughts, right? We are constantly thinking variety of natures. And sometimes those thoughts, they serve us. Sometimes those thoughts don't serve us. But if we can be conscious and conscientious about the thoughts that we have and how they're impacting our actual feelings and, our, and the actions that we take when we have those feelings, we're going to be much better off in terms of putting ourselves in a position to become the person we want to be. You know, if, if you're dealing with pornography or overeating or even screen time addictions, which are, which oh, are now yeah. pretty prevalent, right? <laughs> like how many, how many kids go to the, MT I, I read an article that, you know, kids are going to the MTC and they give them a block of wood to put in their pockets as almost a safety blanket, a security blanket so that they can feel like they have their phone to reduce anxiety. And the question then becomes, okay, well, what's inducing that anxiety? Well, it's a thought. I don't know where my phone is. I, I'm not connected, whatever the thought is. And if you can be conscientious about your thoughts, if you can take those thoughts that you have and, and purposefully mold them into thoughts that are serving you better, you're going to be much better off. Now, yeah. I will caveat that with saying sometimes thoughts that are negative serve us. You know, a, a really simple example of this is I'm sad when someone dies. Sometimes we do want to be sad. Sometimes we do want to grieve that person. This is not a, a, a panacea. This is not an ability to say, well, I'm just never going to feel bad ever again. Because the truth is, 50% of the time, you're going to feel bad. That's opposition in all things. The question is, do you double down on that bad feeling by doing something that in the long run doesn't serve you, like overeating donuts or scrolling Facebook for eight hours or looking at pornography? Or do you say, okay, I'm going to feel this bad feeling as it is here, and, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to look it square in the eye, see how it feels, feel how it feels, and when it's done, when it goes away, I'm going to go back to feeling good about something else. I love that because that's really like with my depression, um, when I was finally actually able to 
because um, I, I, I was one of those, the typical, like no one had any idea type of thing. Cause I can, I can look the part of happiness, like all the time. I mean, even the people that are closest yeah. to me, you know, had no idea. I think that's very freeing to us when we finally get to the point of like, you know what, it's okay to feel sad and let's look at that and why you're feeling that pain. Cause it, it might be telling us something else about our lives. Do you know what I mean? Um, and then we're less yeah, totally. likely to get into those addictive behaviors, like you said, because um, we're actually feeling that versus, you know, trying to replace it. And that's what I was replacing mine with work. You know, I just kept myself constantly busy so I didn't have to actually deal with how I was feeling. <laughs> but that was an addiction yeah. all, all of itself, you know, like I'm, I'm the typical LDS person. I'm in, you know, with all these other people that have other addictions, you know, drinking or drugs or whatever, and realizing that I'm really no different than them. I just had replaced because I was, you know, my, our lifestyle doesn't embrace those kinds of things. So I was doing other unhealthy things. Do you know what I mean? But I guess it made me realize, it made me realize that my sin or my, you know, my vice was really not in uh, any um, in, in a way, they, could, they had something to identify where I was like, I guess I didn't. You know what I mean? Like, it kind of changed. It made me more empathetic to understand people that have those uh, addictions or whatever because that you finally, you're finally able to look at your life and, and see that you have the same thing, it just in a different right. form. <laughs> so, right. So. Well, and I think, we, I think the old maxim that, uh, that we all sin differently is mm-hmm. true. Yeah. Uh, it's really not a matter of whether or not your sin is better than my sin. It's a matter of, can I learn from my sins in, in a way that makes me feel Christ-like love for myself and for, for others? Yeah. Um, and I like to analogize feelings as, a, as something like the running of the bulls. If you've never heard of the running of the bulls, it's, you know, it's in Pamplona, Spain, and they, they take these bulls from the pen up in some part of the town, and they let them run through the streets down to the stadium where they do, you know, bullfighting and things like that. But there are people who like to run along with the bulls. And the way that I think of my feelings, and I think I try to teach my clients about feelings is, now you can be one of two people. Now the truth is the bulls are going to get from the pen to the stadium one way or the other. That's your feelings. They're going to, they're going to happen. Now you can be one of two people. You can be the person who gets in between the bulls and you get hurt and you get gored and you get stampeded because you're trying to get in the way of the bulls or you can stand up in the balcony and watch all the feelings go by and appreciate the feelings for what they are. And mm-hmm. when they get to the stadium, you don't have to think about them anymore. Yeah. Right. That's a perfect analogy. Yeah. I've been working on it in front of the mirror <laughs> for days. <laughs> no, it does. I mean, that's exactly, it makes sense. Like you're there to enjoy it, but you don't have to let it, you know, overtake your life and trample right. you down. Yeah. Right. I love that. Yeah. And then you're able to learn from it too. I mean, you're, you have the experience just like everybody else, but it's, it's not at a place that's going to destroy you. So right. that's great. All right. Nice. Well, um, reframing that language helped you overcome this addiction. Do you feel like that helped you continue to stick with that healthy, I guess, goal of yours of, you know, being free from pornography? How do you feel like that's helped you like stick with that? So, yeah. So our language, it's everything. And it, and it is the way that we think about things. It's, it, it creates our reality. And I think that's an interesting idea because I think sometimes we think, well, you know, things, Stuff just is, and that's why reality is. But if you go back 100 years, people would have no idea what an iPhone was, and they would be completely baffled as to how it works, right? We create our reality because we create, you know, we have thoughts that create it. And when it comes to, okay, do I want to go back to living? And, and this is kind of the crux of the matter, right? There's a lot of people who, out there who have stopped using pornography but continue to feel the draw. And the question becomes, do I want to always have to fight this? Kind of the, the idea of what the 12-step uh, the program teaches you, which is, you know, I, I'm an addict and I will always be an addict. In fact, someone told me the story of this woman who was in their, their ward, their congregation, and every year 
the same month of the, of the year, this woman would get up and she would say, hi, my name is, you know, this is fast and testimony meeting, open mic night for the Mormons. <laughs> yeah. And she would get up and she would say, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic and I've been sober for 20 years, 25 years and going in every year it would get greater, right? Except for she had, she had not become free of her addictions. She had just changed it out. Because to look at this woman, and, I, and this is not in a sense of judgment, but it was just an observation by the person who was telling me the story, she was 350 pounds. She had simply exchanged one addictive behavior for another one in an effort to get away from her feelings. And the thing that I try to teach my clients is I'm going to teach you how to feel your feelings, which means I'm going to teach you how to feel bad. And we're not very good at that. As, as people, we don't like feeling bad. If you've ever stood in line for any length of time with people, you know, 30 years ago, my dad would have been that guy who was like chatting up everybody in line. Oh, hey, where are you from? You know, that sort of guy, because he didn't have a cell phone. But now when you're in line with people, everybody's staring at their phone, not because there's anything of real discernible value on their phone, but because it distracts them from the feeling of discomfort that they're feeling by standing in a line full of people they don't know, waiting for something that they want. and my goal with all of my clients is to teach them how to feel bad in a way that doesn't disrupt their long-term happiness. Because in, in the world of opposition in all things, you're going to feel bad about half the time, regardless of, you know, regardless of how awesome your life is. Yeah. And, if, if you do all those right things, right? I mean, <laughs> feel bad is in, 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 yeah. Oh Yeah. But getting permission to feel bad is huge for a lot of people because they feel like I don't have any, I don't have any right to feel bad. You know, I live in America and I drive a very nice car and all of the reasons that we give ourselves that we shouldn't feel bad. But the truth is you still feel bad. What little I know of your life, um, as, my, as my second or first cousin once removed or whatever <laughs> it is, right? Like, I know that you live in a nice house, in a nice neighborhood, in a nice city, in one of the nicest states in the country, and you know all the things that go along with that. And I, you know, me too. And yet, you felt bad, so bad sometimes that you were depressed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And why? Why Suicidal. is it that it's not okay to feel bad? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, and that's what when I, I love this uh, idea where we're going, because once you can, like you said, feel those feelings, then you can move past them. And, and I love the whole running of the bulls thing. Um, you know, you allow it to happen, you experience it, and then it lets you move on to the next best thing in your life instead of always focusing again on why you shouldn't feel this way. You're so focused on the I shouldn't be, or I can't, that it's not letting you get to the better part of your life of like, Hey, I feel this way. I can choose this and, you know, and then move on to something healthier. I think you're that just that reframing is so healthy. I'm excited to see, uh, you know, where your business grows. That's what James Clear does in this article. He's talking about a reframing of our entire way of looking at things. He's not really just talking about, I can't. He's talking about reframing your entire vocabulary into a place of empowerment. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. The Leonardo da Vinci quote, um, one can have no smaller or greater mastery than the mastery of oneself. I mean, that's the very end of like, how can we apply this to our life? It's becoming a better self on top of, you know, just not being able to not do something anymore. It's like moving past it and becoming a better self of being able to have that maintained sense of well-being and control in our life that we all want to feel like we're in control. You know, I think somebody told me that's the greatest addiction that we have as, as people is to have that sense of control. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because when we take control in short term bursts, we do ourselves a disservice, but when we create our reality by what, you know, James is talking about here being the architect of our reality, then not only do we create control, but we have a greater sense of joy within that. Oh yeah. Right? It's, it's mm -hmm. satisfaction rather than pleasure. 
exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, moving on to mastering your best self, then, then you become like with the architect, you become the person, you, you can draw the plans, you can make the, make it happen in your life with that sense of being the person who is the master, the controller. <laughs> so, well, do you yeah. have any other habits? I mean, maybe besides just changing our mindset, maybe other habits in your personal life that have been really helpful to, you know, becoming a person that's hopefully able to master that great life that you want. So one of the things that I've been studying are these things called micro habits. And I don't know if you're familiar with them or you've ever heard mm -hmm. of them. Uh, micro habits to me have been kind of a life changing thing. I went to a homeschool convention where you've heard of the marshmallow experiment where uh -huh. you know, they put marshmallows in front of a kid and, and, you know, for every like five or 10 minutes, whatever it was, they'd get more marshmallows. Eventually, you know, the, the more self-control the child had, the more marshmallows they could get was the essential. So, uh, the guy, one of the guys who helped as a grad student on that, he spoke at this homeschool convention and he talked about well he called them pee push-ups and he, so we talked about micro habits his analysis or his uh the professor that he was working with at the time did an experiment so micro habits essentially are you add a habit or add an additional item to a habit that you already have ingrained so a lot of us the first thing we do when we get up is we um, go pee and then we brush our teeth right yeah so if you can add something to that, that is of value to you, you're, you know, if you can try and add a habit to that, whatever that is, if it's, if you want to do, you know, 10 pushups in the morning, every morning, um, you're much more likely to succeed when you attach it to those previously ingrained habits. Uh, and so one of the things that this researcher was doing is he, every time he went to the bathroom, he did pushups. And so I, I tried this. And I thought it was fascinating because I, I couldn't do three push-ups at the time. So I started with three push-ups and eventually I was able to do 50 push-ups at a time. And every time I would go to the bathroom, every time I'd go pee, I would do push-ups. You know, it wasn't always 50 and it wasn't always three. It was, you know, usually somewhere in between, but it was this moment where, you know, I couldn't create a new habit of going to the gym, but I could go pee a few times a day. Right. That's and now I could also do 50 pushups at a crack, which is just do, fascinating. And so a lot you of our do that before or after you go pee, but, does it help yeah. you go faster? <laughs> <laughs> I would always do them after. Okay. So I would go pee, I would do my pushups and then I'd wash my hands, especially. And th the nice thing about pushups is that you can do them almost anywhere. You know, you do them in a public restroom and it's gross, <laughs> but you get up and you wash your hands and that's fine. Right. Yeah. Um, but it is a little bit awkward when people walk in and they see you doing push-ups on the floor <laughs> and they're like, what are you doing? And you explain it and they're like, oh, that's fascinating. Right. Like, yeah. it, it's kind of a fun uh, conversation piece if you like to talk to people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I love the micro habits and, and the consistency. I think uh, a lot of us are striving for perfection when really, I think what I'm hearing you're saying is that we need to be just striving for that tiny consistency in our lives. Like you said, you didn't always do 50 push-ups, but you did some kind of extra little thing while you were going pee. Does that make sense? Like, like yeah. that tiny little consistency thing makes a huge difference in the long run. And then pretty soon you're fit just by going to the bathroom. <laughs> you know, does that, right. Right. Yeah. You're yeah. going to go to the bathroom anyway. You might as well do something useful with it. And by the way, doing, you know, if you go to the bathroom, let's say 10 times over the course of an entire day and you're doing 10 pushups each time, that's a hundred pushups you weren't doing before. Yeah. And there are not very many of us who can be like, yeah, I did a hundred pushups today. Yeah. And then that can, like I said, that tiny bit of consistency, it makes a huge difference in the long run. It's that atomic habits things that going back to James Clear, you know, yeah, that he talks right. about that, the tiny little effort that you make every day in one area of your life can have huge long-term effects. You know, it's like that, the airplane that's off course, you know, what, uh, 90 something percent. It's that 1% though, that, that keeps it back on track. And <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think it's, yeah. Uh, you know, a 1% improvement, which is one of my favorite things, 1% improvement is huge difference. 
so and bringing this back to pornography, uh, you know, I, I did a podcast on what does success look like? And I think a lot of people think success is 100% all the time freedom from pornography. But if you think about it in terms of, you know, the most successful um, sports figures, right? Baseball is a really good example of this. The greatest baseball hitters are, are at, you know, 30%, just over 30%. Wow. 30% of the time they get up to bat, they hit the ball. Now, if you count in all the swings before they hit the ball, it's even lower than that. And most pornography users, uh, I'm not saying that this is what success is, but I am saying we beat ourselves up significantly if we have a 15-minute lapse in the course of an entire week. Mm-hmm. You know, 98.9% of the time or 99.15% of the time, we're free of pornography, but that 15 minutes means that we're a terrible person, right? Yeah. And so we got to kind of take a step back and say, okay, am I really a terrible person for having a small brief moment of lapse or am I human? And does my humanness teach me something that I can use to become better? Yeah. Well, and I, I used to do that with diet and exercise too. Like um, one little, like, oh, I've gone off, you know, I've cheated on my... Yeah, I've uh, gone off the rails. And so yeah, I'm going to eat off all the of the burritos in a fridge. So then, yeah. So then the next or for the rest of the day, I'm just yeah, yeah. off the rails. Where when I started just looking at like, okay, I messed up on that meal. So the next meal I'm going to keep and I'm going to do better. And started doing that percentage. Like you said, I actually take a percentage of how much I... I stay on my diet and then I can make adjustments to it and I can make goals too. Like, okay, this week I want to be, you know, 85% better at this. So I, you know, that means that, but it gives me the allowance to go, like you said, that you can, you can mess up and you can go, okay, I'm human and then get back on it. And I've been more successful in that mindset than having to be 100% perfect. It's the consistency versus perfection type of goal or, you know, the difference between those two. Yes. So that's awesome. Being 90, 95% good at something is way better. You know, being 95% good at something 95% of the time is way better than being a hundred percent good at something 50% of the time. Right. Yeah. It's that space where it's like, okay, I want to be great at something. I need to be consistent more than I need to be perfect. Exactly. And then that consistency can build to, you know, doing whatever activity that much better than we were doing before. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Okay. That's great. Well, I'd love to hear like your long-term goals and kind of that legacy of where you hope those goals take your life to that mastery life that we all want. (laughs) Yeah. That is a fantastic question. You know, I think the number one goal for me is to have joy. And I reach back into this from, you know, all the way back to, you know, Sunday school. And for a long time, I felt like, you know, I need to be successful in business. And I worked for, you know, a large corporation and I moved up and I, you know, I had a six figure salary and a five figure bonus, but I would sit through meetings and I would be just unhappy with the world around me. And at some point I decided, you know what, I would rather be in charge of my own destiny than at the whim of some corporate guy who just wants to impress his boss with my attendance in a meeting. And so I left the large corporate structure. I started my own business as, a, as an insurance agent. And I've gone from that to, to this in an effort to really make a difference and have joy in my life. Because at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter how much money you make. Although you can make a great deal of money having fun and having joy in your life. But if you are not having fun and having joy, then the money that you make isn't necessarily going to make your life that much better. Now, my wife would tell you that she would like me to make more money all of the time. And that's because <laughs> we have eight kids and they all need shoes. But more than anything, finding joy in my life is, is my long-term goal. And the way that I do that is, is by specifically structuring my life in a way that I am choosing who I want to be. Yeah. 
Well, and I think we all kind of come to that. We, we have to really figure out if the definition of success that we carry around in our head is our own definition or somebody else's definition for us. Um, I think that's right. I mean, where, where I came, came from, too, of like, you know, I was living a definition of success and I looked, you know, looked all successful. But in the end, I wasn't it wasn't my definition of success. It was what society was telling me or, you know, what I looked around and it looks like, OK, this is what successful people do and have and all of that kind of thing. But it wasn't making me happy. So I think that's really important when we're looking at mastering our best self is like, what is your definition of success and really having a grasp on that. Um, so is living joy in your life, is that like where you feel like your legacy would be that, that you can help other people do that or, or what's that legacy look like? Well, so I, th I think it's twofold, right? I would like my legacy to be that I've taught people to have joy regardless of lives. But more than that, you know, I have eight children. <laughs> and for me, the idea that my children could have joy is paramount. I'm not as worried about their immediate, how do I put this nicely? I don't care if they are happy right now. I care if they have joy in the long run. Because, you know, I think kids are, are pretty interesting in that they expect a lot from you as, as an adult. And a lot of it is, is totally warranted. You know, they, they should have clothes and they should have food and they should have shelter. But at some point, they have to recognize that everything else is gravy. And to teach them that is not easy. I like the phrase, uh, I love you enough to make you hate me sometimes. Because what that means is my children are, they're struggling through and I'm not giving them everything so that it's too easy for them. It's an opportunity for them to become bigger than they are. Yeah, let's just give us uh, maybe that quick parting advice for our listeners and then your contact information. Yeah, so the thing that I would say is don't, don't wait. Don't wait to make your change. Don't wait to step into the void and begin to become the person that you want to be. And if you are somebody who's uh, struggling with addictive behaviors, whether it's pornography or screen time, or you're just feeling like Stuck. there's got to be more <laughs> than what there is, yeah, if you're stuck, feel free to you know reach out to me. I you can set up a free mini session on my website, zackspafford.com. Uh, I'm sure you'll provide a link in the in the notes. Yep. And I would love to have a conversation with you because yeah. I think that becoming the person you want to be, that's a process that you need to be in charge of yourself. That's awesome. Okay. Well, again, we've been talking with Zach Spafford. He's my cousin-in-law, so once removed or whatever. He's a be bold mastery <laughs> <laughs> trained life coach. Um, like I said, he's got an awesome podcast where he's talking about a lot of disruptive ideas and you can find him at zackspafford.com. I'm definitely going to provide a link in our show notes page, but thank you so much, Zach, for coming on and uh, to really help us understand how changing our mindset can really help us. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. Music featured in this episode from Scott Holmes. To learn more about our podcast, check us out at theluminousmind.net.